0: through 11. <laughs> One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? <clears throat> Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David said when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus.
1: Thank you, Shelley. Kids are excuse for Kids Church and Libraries are invited. This is our fourth Sunday in this journey with Luke's gospel, which we'll sort of go from Uh, The first of the year until Easter Sunday, and we sort of walked with this, both in the season the church calls Epiphany, which is now, in which we look at the way sort of God is revealing this kingdom and pointing to things, and then in the season of Lent, in which we sort of will walk the journey to the cross with Jesus, both of those things sort of coming together in this series. Um, So we looked first at Jesus' sort of uh, power over evil in the wilderness and as well as um, his <coughs> disclosure of what his mission is about in Luke 4, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me proclaim the news of the poor and the sick, that this sort of frames the gospel. And then David spoke to us about um, the demonic and sort of pushing back on those things as they come into our lives. And then last week we talked about Jesus' pattern of table fellowship, that he would eat and go Uh, And spend time with people who you were not supposed to spend time with in that world, particularly not to have a meal with. Um, And that upset these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, which I talked last week and they they appear here again. They're sort of adversaries to Jesus. Is is that one scholar called them the serious? These are people who are the serious about the Bible and the scriptures and God in their own minds. And so that's why Jesus says to them, you know, is it the healthy who be a doctor for who the sick? In their own sense of self, they're certainly the healthy. There is no sickness within them. And so Jesus and these people sort of have this sort of running conflict through all of the synoptic gospels and into John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's sort of this running conflict. And one of the reasons I think of that's true is this idea of, of this tension over what is the law about what does it mean to be a faithful Jew at this time. So the Pharisees have their own way of sort of expressing what does it mean to be a faithful Jew. It means to avoid these things. It means to not do these things. It means to not participate in the world in these ways. That they have a very strong sense of what that means. They know all the do's. And even more than that, as it becomes this way with the serious in our own lives, they certainly know all the don'ts of the spiritual life, of the with God life. What happens is Jesus appears on the scene, and he seems to be correcting the curve of sort of what the law is about. So we see him sort of changing things. In in Matthew's gospel, he'll say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, pointing out the deeper meaning and the deeper truths of the law. And so this passage for us this Sunday that says, one Sabbath. Jesus was walking, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Now, Jesus, we talked about this with Mark, I think, a lot. Jesus seems to have Sabbath problems. Most of his conflict seems to happen on the Sabbaths. Um, There's uh, Kelly will say, can somebody keep the president from tweeting? And I would imagine somebody's disciples Uh, one of the disciples' job, was to keep Jesus from doing bad things on the Sabbath. If you did it on Monday, we'd be fine. If you did it on Tuesday, we'd be fine. If you did it on Friday, we'd be fine. But you continually walk right into the center of the worship and do these things that just tick people off Jesus, what's the point? Why are you doing this? So one Sabbath, the disciples were walking to the fields, and they they were gathering grain and breaking them off. And and now this, I never knew this until I started studying for this week. Was is that in the Old Testament? It's there are sort of three commands for the Sabbath. One, most people know, don't work. Well, what's that mean? There are only two instructions in the Old Testament on what that means. Don't kindle fires and don't go pick up sticks. That's it. <coughs> And so, what the Jews had to figure out, and I don't blame the Pharisees or any other Jewish person trying to figure out what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy by not working on it. You know, especially we go, okay, so work is where I go nine to five, Monday through Friday. In this culture, work is like right next to your house. The animals that you take care of are part of your work. Um, if you're a blacksmith, it's in the front of your house that that business is run up. There is no separation between work and not work, as clear as it is in our world. Those cell phones seem to be messing <laughs> that up. I'm not at the office, but I still get texts and emails and this that and the other. Point being is that in their world, there was no clear division, and so they had to figure out what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy by not working. The Pharisees of this time developed a robust list of what work is. Now, there's two things going on in the story. The first is that they're walking through a field that's obviously not their field. So are they stealing? According to the book of Deuteronomy, no. Travelers, as they walk through fields, are allowed to pick some of the grain. Now, if they pick it and take it with them, that is theft. But if they pick it and eat it for substance while they're in the field, that's okay. So theft isn't the problem. The problem is that at this time, and there have been different times in if you read um, all the Jewish documents of this time and before this time, there are times where they said, um, threshing, gathering the wheat would be work, but threshing it is also work, to make it into something edible, right? So do that the day before, which seems reasonable. And then there are times where they say, no, it's okay to, to, to make some of the grain up to be able to eat on the Sabbath. that's okay. Well, the serious, of course, which side do they take? You can't do it at all. And so I. the thing for me that this reminded me of is that I like peanuts a lot. Kelly hates them because I eat them inside and they end up on the couch and then she has a vacuum every time we eat peanuts. Um, they're not easy to eat, but in some sense, and she would be on the side of the Pharisees. Thresh them on a different day outside, um, and then when you're ready to eat them, they're ready. But I like to uh, crack my nuts at, while I'm watching a baseball game normally and just sort of eat them and relax. And that's sort of my way of doing this. Now, this is sort of the question is, I didn't know what to do with it other than <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to talk and eat. I'll get this back. I have no clue what I was going to do with it after the, <laughs> um, the This is the issue at hand, right? Is if you have peanuts on the Sabbath, are you allowed to crack them? Are you not allowed to crack them? Because cracking them, as you just saw, is like a little bit of work, And it doesn't seem to me like an entirely unjust law to say, like, plan ahead, like, crack your nuts on, on Friday, and then you can eat them on the Sabbath. This is not an unjust thing. But Jesus being Jesus uses this as an object lesson to teach the Pharisees. So the serious they... The 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 serious the Pharisees they say, What are you doing? What are you doing? What is why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when him and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God, and taking the consecrated of bread, and he ate what is only lawful for what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions this is one of these things. I love it when Jesus does this to the serious. He says to them, Have you not read? Now, if you've ever been in a debate with somebody who's very serious, they're the serious and you're the wrong, and they're always accusing and throwing out a few things, it's always a great moment to say, Oh, but have you not read in the scriptures? Because what do they portray themselves as? the expert in those things. They know all things. And so Jesus' question back to them is, have you not read, which would just, I think, sting them a little bit. They'd be like, yeah, we read it. Um, We live it. We're the ones who know all of it. How dare you? Um, Have you not read about David and his companions? Now this is the story that Kara read for us during the worship time, of when they go to the temple and they ask for some of the bread, and it Reading the story in 1 Samuel, these people, first there's this Davidic kinship line, which is what Jesus is tied to in the Gospels, is that he's this new son of David, he's this new king, he's this new one. He is figuring that all over, like, figuring, imaging it all over again, not figuring it out, figuring, imaging it all over again in some ways. And so he's first claiming that he eating that peanut is a bad idea. He's first claiming that he is like David in this scenario. And that him and his disciples are on sort of this faithful journey themselves, too. That they're sort of in this spot. And what he also is claiming is that they have the right to eat these holy things of God as they're doing this. He's proclaiming that he is the one. And so he says at the end of this passage, then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus turns this. Now, this is an important part for us today to hear is because we say Jesus eradicates the Sabbath. Well, hopefully we don't say that. We do say that, but we don't mean that. Uh, Jesus changes the patterns of the Sabbath. What did we talk about at the start of this is that there were ways of saying what's allowed and what isn't allowed law of the Sabbath. There are ways of weighting the Old Testament law in certain ways. So the question that Jesus is asked in the Gospels is which of the commandments is the greatest? And he says these two, beloved love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's weighting the law in a different way. He actually says all the other commandments hang on these two things not all the other commandments disappear because we have these two things, but that all the other commandments hang on these two things. And so this is part of the tension of interpreting the 620 commandments that make up the Old Testament, I think there are, is to say, which one do we wait Which one is our lens for looking at them? Which is our way of interpreting through them? And again, it's not to abolish them. And so Christians which I we will say this, but I don't think we mean it, is God has abolished the Sabbath. Then what is Jesus the Lord of at the end of this passage? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's for him to be enthroned on the Sabbath. It's for him to become something on the Sabbath. And, and in the next story we'll talk about, he changes the pattern of the Sabbath in some ways too. But it's not that, that God has abolished the time for us to rest. It's not that God has abolished the time for us to come and to worship and commune together, which were the Sabbath practices of the first century Jews. It's also, in the next story, that the Sabbath restores humanity to something. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve eat of the tree, they're cursed almost into work. They had this sort of God vocation before. They weren't not um, working in, in some sense. Adam names all the animals. There's things that happen. But they're cursed into this. They have to till. They have to go to work. Childbirth becomes pain. And so what the Sabbath becomes for them is this day to remember what it's like to be and commune with God. To cease from all of that pain and trial of, of reaping and making the earth a place where we can live. And to know that God is good. I think one of the major gifts of the Sabbath, and I encourage people to practice um, a Jesus like Sabbath today is that it reminds us of our humanity and it reminds us that we aren't God. In this world, we're tempted, I am, um, to work all the time, to continually make work of things, to continually keep busy. And what does it mean to abstain for a day from that? My job, my work. So that God can be God. And I notice that I'm not the one who makes the world spin around. Um, I think our tendency to work, and to continually always be working, is part of this workaholism that makes us part more important than we are. So to cease to work is to notice that God is God. Which brings us to the second story, another Sabbath. I don't know which disciple's job it was, but it was like he failed. He did not keep him from causing problems on another Sabbath. And another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, which big problem there, um, and was teaching. And a man who right and, and there was a man whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched very closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Um, Luke has this great detail that it's his right, detail that it's his right hand that shriveled, which isn't in the other Gospels. Is that this man has lost some ability in his life? Later, the church will make him the patron saint of painters, which is to say, if your right hand is shriveled, you can't paint. So he's lost his ability to work. He's lost his ability to sort of um, be respected in the community. He's lost his ability to sort of worship. There are some commands in the Old Testament that he can't even go to worship with this sort of physical deformity. This person is sort of on the outside in many ways. Now there's this, um, i trying to think if this adds anything or not. I had a, many of you know I have multiple sclerosis, and one of my early symptoms was luckily not my right hand, but it was my left hand. And my left hand tripled up so much it was useless. Um, it was like the withered hand, it, like couldn't do anything. And so I finally got busted, I did my best to try and hide it, which I imagine this man with the triple hand might also have been trying to hide it, although that's projection on my part. But I was trying to hide it, and I was at church one morning, and I told the secretary, can you open my door, and she said, why? I said, because my hands won't open it, because um, I had something in my right hand. And then she ratted me off to Kelly, and that was the end of everything. And then I got it. <laughs> um, um, I was doing my best to sort of not make that in the world. But it was it's amazing on how much you try to compensate with compensate with that, how much you hide, how much you this. I was at a, a baseball game holding the drink, and my hand just tilted and it, poured it out while I was talking to someone. Um, I tried to drive, and it would get like caught on things, which was kind of painful. Like, you would stick it on the steering wheel, but it would go into the steering wheel, and then your fingers would be caught like this. It's still drove, but that was not OK. Um, uh, and then Kelly and I went rafting once. And this was the best part. It's a raft guide. I uh, I said, you know, I, I, can I sit on this side so I can kind of paddle like this, at least? Um, I would try to use my hand, but not that well. And he was like, oh, what's wrong with your left hand? And I was like, oh, it's like, and at that moment, I knew it was probably something like multiple sclerosis. I was like, it's like, sure, up hand, it doesn't work. And he was like, oh, that happened to one of my bros once. OK, I'll work with you. And I was like, I don't. <laughs> I think he's misunderstanding what's going on with my left hand. Um, and yet what happens is you begin to feel, I can't contribute on the raft. Mm. I can't make my way in the world. Driving, our hands are so vital to what we do in the world. It wasn't until that point <coughs> that I became aware of how important having both hands is. I learned to type very well with one hand and to have your hand restored after that. Uh, if you're wondering not to get into too much, MS goes in cycles so you get your your skills back. So that and restore it after that is world-changing in amazing ways. It brings you back able to do things. There was a, uh, I went to our church league softball game and I, the hand, I couldn't get a baseball mitt on. And so I couldn't play softball in the church league softball league because you needed a mitt. Um, not that it wouldn't be done me much good if I could have gotten the mitt on. But the point is, because um, it would have been, it wouldn't have helped. But um, <laughs> The point is is that you lose your ability to function in community without your hands. And it's something I didn't realize until I lost the ability to lose, use one of my hands. It seems like a minor thing, and yet you lose so much when you lose just the ability to use your left hand, not even your dominant hand, which is clearly what this passage is trying to say, is he lost the ability of his right side, the dominant side to sort of do things in the world. I could still write. If I had the type one-handed with my left hand, he would have not gone as well as my right hand. This man has lost so much in this world. And so when we read this passage, and this was part of my early thoughts about it before I sunk into my own life on it a little bit, was it's like, what's the big deal? It's a one wither hand. What's the problem? But he's lost the right to be in worship. He's lost the right to earn his own way. He's lost his ability to function in the world. And you can't imagine how many other things he's losing with his hand. Um, In a world of mainly physical, manual labor, he's lost so much more than just the ability to use his right hand. And it's weird because this is what happens when you try to prove Your point, in some ways, you use that which is supposed to draw compassion in you to make a point. The Sirius and the Pharisees knew this man was there, and they were looking at Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I think it's for us, in some ways, too, that we look for things to tear down so we can got you somewhere. We look for ways to sort of shame somebody over something. we look for even inconsistencies. This is one of my favorite things least favorite things to see but favorite to collect and notice is that we try to put out people's inconsistencies when they're being compassionate. I noticed you helped that person, but you think people should do things on their own. Or I noticed you did this, and yet you think this. We do that, and it's like what? When people are being better people, we should probably just encourage it. And yet we do this sort of gotcha thing, or we say, you went through this, and you know if you're doing that, then why haven't you changed your opinion on X, Y, or Z, or done this or that and the other? And that is like using the person with the withered hand to say, I wonder what they're going to do with this. When it's supposed to draw out compassion within the Pharisees and within ourselves, so Jesus is in the process of restoring community for this man and restoring everything else with it. And so Jesus has him stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Now, in Mark's gospel, he, he throws in this teaching that most of the Pharisees agree with, despite their seriousness which is that if your ox is caught in something or if your animal is in trouble, you can go help it. That's not the type of work that the the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that what is lawful on the Sabbath is it to heal? Is it to save life? Or what is the point of the Sabbath all along so that we can destroy? It? So that we can do evil? This is going back to that earlier passage where I said, is that Jesus is then talking about what a proper Sabbath looks like as restoration. It looks like fixing. It looks like repair. Because what we see in the Sabbath is God's proper relationship to us. Jesus is one who restores on this. Now, this one for the disciples and for us, he could have waited probably four hours and healed this person. What he says to them is he looked around and he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law were the and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Are we to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it on the Sabbath? But is it for us in our lives? How do we answer that question? How do we see it? And, and the reason why the Pharisees don't have a response is because the answer is obvious. There is no other question. And so Jesus encourages the man to stretch out his hand, and it's restored. Now, part of, I think, having a hand like that is you can imagine how many times you stretched it out hoping that it might be restored. It's just your way of sort of coping with that, is to see. And many of us have been wounded in other ways where you keep using it and you're like, will it get better? Jesus encourages this man to stretch out his hand and restoration happens. And so this is, um, there's a, we worship a God who heals. We worship a God who does miracles. And so it is for me and for you and for all of us to look for places of healing and miraculous. And yet, in my life, I prayed for healing um, for people, and it's in the way of praying for the sick, in which the um, later epistles will talk about, praying for the sick. But I've never felt called to say to somebody, stretch out your hand, pick up your mat, and walk. Um, Lazarus, come forth, raise them from the dead. And yet it is for us as Christians to sort of um, know that healings and the miraculous takes place through Jesus, and through in the book of Acts, through his disciples as well. And I don't know if it's for all of us to see those things in our life. That I actually, it's not clear that everybody is doing these things. If you look up, if you look at Paul's letter back to these early Christian communities, very seldom is he telling them you need to be healing all the affirmities, you need to be doing all these things. And part of the reason I think for that is because healed people die. Lazarus dies again. And so this restoration on the Sabbath is pointing us to the fulfillment of things, but it is not the fulfillment of things themselves. The man with the withered hand will die later. And so when these miracles happen, they point us to something of this inbreaking of the shape of the kingdom that Jesus is witnessing and making in the world. It is for us to see them in that way too. Now, for me, if I prayed for a miracle and it happened, I would certainly be very into the miracle and forget that it was about the kingdom and the reign that Jesus is bringing. It's about the restoration of not just a hand, but of all things. And so Christ's signs, as John calls them, the way that he uses these in the gospel is to point to that day when all things shall be restored. What did the man lose? He lost his community, he lost his dignity, he lost his ability to participate in the world as a normal person Mm -hmm. does. And what has Jesus restored to him that, and so it shall be with us. And so that's part of what I think we expect in the miraculous, I should say, Um, In the ancient worldview, the miraculous, uh, for Christians and for Jews particularly, the miraculous isn't a discarding of the natural order as much as it is a discarding of the unnatural order. So in this case, it is the uh, cursed ground, it is the darkness of Satan, it is a world that's bent away from God that Jesus pushes back into normalcy. The world is not meant to be bent away from God. The world is not meant to be ruled by death and sickness. The world is not meant for these things. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't change the laws of science to to create a miracle. What he does is restores God's creation. So there are interruptions of a sort, but they're not scientific interruptions as much as they're interruptions of business as usual that accepts that dysfunction is the way it is. But before we end... There's one last thing I wanted to say, which is that the early church, some of them, when they interpret the story, they say we are the withered. The, the one of the earliest phrases for sins was was kind of like a scoliosis of the spine, is that we're bent, we're curved in upon ourselves, and so we exist as the withered. We exist as those in this way, as Christ say to us to reach out our hand, and to be healed and restored. There's a quote on the back of the bulletin about that that I won't read now. I want to read an obituary, and then we'll end the service. Uh, This is the obituary of Ken Fusen. It was published earlier this month. Another pastor pointed out to me. And I'll just read the whole thing, so get comfortable. Ken Fusen, born July, June 23, 1956, died January 3, 2020 at Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha of liver cirrhosis and is stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. He grew up in Granger and decided when he was a sophomore at Woodward Granger High School that he wanted to be a newspaper reporter. He covered sports for the Woodward Enterprise before leaving for the University of Missouri-Columbia. He attended the university's famous school of journalism, which was just a clever way of saying almost graduated but didn't. Facing a choice between covering a story for the Columbia Daily Tribune or taking final exams, Ken went for the story. He Never claimed to be smart, just committed. In 1981, Ken landed his dream job working as a reporter for the Des Moines Register, where he was probably best known for writing a one-paragraph, one-sentence weather story that has been reprinted in four books. In 1996, Ken took the principal stand of leaving the register because the son in Baltimore offered him more money. Three years later, having blown most of the money at a Pomenko racetrack, he returned to the register, where he remained until 2008. In his newspaper work, Ken won several national feature writing awards, including the Ernest Pyle Award, the NSA Distinguished Award, National Headlager Award, Missouri Award twice. No, he didn't win a Pulitzer, but he's dead now, so get off his back. There are those who would suggest that becoming a freelance writer in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression was not a wise choice, but Ken was never one to be guided by wisdom. He wrote the book Heading for Hole" with Ken Stock about the 1991 Norway baseball team that won the state championship in its final season. Good copies still available. In, 1991, in 2001, Ken accepted a marketing job at Simpson College, where he remained until 2018. He enjoyed it very much. Once again forgotten, important lesson. Always have a plan B. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of twenty nineteen, which is pretty ironic given how little he drank. Eat your fruits and vegetables, kids. He's survived by his sons and his father. He hopes they will forgive him for not making he loves them and has unsurpassed in them. He hopes they forgive them for not making the point more often. He loved his boy and is extraordinarily proud to be their family. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends and the loving members at Gambling Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken Ken last placed a bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is even harder. Miracles abound. Ken's pastor likes to say God can work miracles for you and for you. Skepticism may be cool, and for too many years Ken embraced it. but but it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. That is one thing he never regretted. It changed everything. For many years, Ken was a member of the First United Methodist Church in Indiana and sang in the choir, which was a neat trick considering he couldn't read a note of music. The choir members will never know how much they helped him. He then joined the Lutheran Church of Hope. If you want to know what God's love feels like, just walk in those doors. Seriously, right now, we'll wait. Ken's not going anywhere. Ken had many characters Philosophy If he still owes you money, he's sincerely sorry, but he liked to think that he had a good sense of humor and deep compassion for others. He pride himself on not letting other on letting other drivers cut in line. He would give you the shirt off his back, even with the present ever food food stain. Thank goodness nobody asked, it wouldn't have been pretty. He'll also make Master Master Jumble's salt. He other survivors, but in lieu of flowers, Ken asked that you would wear black armbands well in public during a one-year grieving period. <laughs> if that doesn't work, how about do- donating a book to the public libraries in Granger and bring, bring the Old? Yes, this obituary is probably too long. Ken always wrote too long. God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Ken promises to let you cut in the line. <laughs> We are the ones with the withered hands. And Ken found the gambling anomalous relationship with the church, a miracle in and of itself that released him from that continual sin. Chain, coming to Jesus Christ changed everything. This isn't to undercut that miracles do happen. But miracles happen in other ways rather than just these miraculous signs. If you knew Ken as a gambler before he changed his life in this way, it would be nothing short of a miracle to probably see him singing in the choir at church with his changed life. Restored to community, restored to friendship, and restored to family. And may we, as we are the winner, seek healing from Christ, stretch out our hands, and receive what God has promised us in the restoration of all things. Let's pray. Yeah. Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit, we've come into worship today on this Sabbath that Christians celebrate due to the Resurrection, Uh to hear, to be taught, to sing, to be lifted up, to be comforted, to be healed. Uh God, we ask that you heal us. (laughs) Straighten out our wickedness. Allow that miracle of change, of transformation, only possible by your Spirit to take place in our lives and in our community. May we pray for your healing. May we pray for people who can restore May we not intercut, but turn away the ways it shows in our own lives. For we worship the one by whose stripes we are healed. And praise him and his power over the grave. I ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.